thank you for downloading this episode of Heartland Podcast. My name is Rasmus Quiskart, and I'm the program director of talks at Heartland Festival. The talk you're about to hear is a live conversation that took place at Heartland Festival in 2017. It's called On War Tourism. Roughly speaking, war tourism means people paying vast amounts of money for being transported to some of the most dangerous places on Earth. War zones, places of terror or political conflict. In this talk, the two participants seek to explain the deeper attraction of this highly risky business, the psychological meaning of it, how it works, and what the consequences of war tourism are. The conversation is between Loretta Napoleone and Jill Buenit. Italian author and economist Loretta Napoleone is an expert on terrorism and on war tourism. She has devoted most of her work, books and journalistic work, to the study of terrorism and specifically how modern terrorist organizations are funded or financed. Her best-selling book Terror Incorporated deals with how international economic systems are actually feeding terrorist groups and extremists. And her insights into dealing with the financing or funding of terrorism has made her an advisor for several governments on counter-terrorism. She sounds like this. The Pope said, um, I think two years ago, he said, World War III has already started. And do you know what? He's right. Because if you look at the world, there are wars everywhere. If you compare the map of the world today and 20 years ago, we have many, many more wars. The only place that is relatively peaceful, where of course we have terrorism, is us. Jill Bunet is one of Denmark's leading primatologists, which means that she is an expert on apes, not least human apes. Via evolutionary and anthropological psychology, Jill Bunet understands our, in evolutionary terms at least, almost necessary attraction to war. She can thus explain what could be called the meaning of war tourism. And she sounds like this. I think a lot of people are really confused about this postmodern way to live. I think it, it's nice for us sometimes to actually remove the thin line between being humans and other animals and just let go of the, the social programs you actually created for. I think that's a big relief to a lot of people. The conversation is moderated by author, journalist and political advisor Jacob Sheik. Just before we get into the discussion here, just to get, to, to get you an idea of what war tourism actually is, um, I want you to meet a British guy. His name is Andrew Drury. Uh, and Andrew is fond of wars. He's uh, fascinated by wars, he's fascinated by bloodshed, and he's been uh, traveling around the world uh, from war to war, from Pakistan to Somalia to Syria, in order to, say, watch the conflict from, from, uh, from, the, first, from the first row. Uh, so if we can play clip two, please. My name's Andrew Drury. I'm classed as a war tourist. I spent the last 20 years of my life traveling to the most dangerous uh, locations on Earth. Um, it started back in Uganda um, on a guerrilla trekking trip. Um, I decided I wanted to go into the Congo because it had a bad reputation of being pretty awful. Um, crossed illegally into there and got chased out with a man with a big knife running through his banana plantation. I got addicted to the adrenaline when I got back and seeked some of the worst destinations since then. Following wars in Chechnya, Bosnia, um, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq 
all the places you can imagine that are the worst on earth I've been to. Um, I would imagine probably the worst so far would have been Mogadishu. Um, it's kind of a place that you go to die really. So I would say consider that was bad. Got close to a suicide bomb, got close to, um, to be killed there. Um, recently USA, um, Ku Klux Klan, come away into there. Um, got threatened by the Reverend Travis Pierce to be killed. First trip, pretty much bad destination was in Iraq. Um, during the conflict into Mosul. Had a price tag put on my head of 100,000, which I thought was a cheek. I thought I'm worth about at least a million. But we were told to leave by the CIA, try to clear our way out into Iran. I thought we got held hostage, got released, bought a kebab, and had to get away back through Iraq. My next trip um, plan at the moment, I've been planning this for the past um, two and a half months. Uh, about 10 years ago, I met a tribe of Yazidis in Iraq they worship the devil or the fallen angel. Um, and I met a guy called Sheikh Baba, and I want to return to see if I can find him. The only danger this time, um, his village is on the border of um, Syria. It's called Sinjar. Um, just recently, he got liberated by the bombing of the French. And I want to see if my mate, Sheikh Baba, is still alive. The possibility is tribe have been deceased. They found a mass grave of 3,000 dead. So I'm going to put myself to a real extreme, goes front line to the battle with ISIS. I've been asked on many occasions why I do this. To be honest, I don't really know, I can't work out for myself. But it's that sense of adrenaline when I get back. Yes, I am risking my life. Yes, I am probably risking probably a life for my, my children and my family because they need my money, they need me as a father. But I still can't stop doing it. It's addictive. I think the adrenaline is addictive, so I can't stop. So let, let me remind you all that this guy is not a journalist. He's not a warrior. He doesn't have any professional aim in uh, engaging in a war zone. He just does it for, for adrenaline, for fun, and because he can't help himself, he says. Um, and let me remind you, this is not the only one that does this. Um, I, I actually went through the internet to see if I could find these war zone uh, so, sort of vacation companies, enterprises. Uh, I found war zone tours, I found wild frontiers, I found untamed borders. I mean, Loretta, what do you think when you hear Andrew's story? Well, I'm, I must say I'm not surprised at all because I came across uh, these kind of people before. Um, journalists, aid workers, or single individuals. Uh, I would say that uh, these kind uh, of tourism, if you want to call it tourism, started uh, after 9-11. Um, started very much with Iraq. In fact, you know, he said that a lot of Americans decided to change their job and go there and become citizen journalists, basically reporting the war from the front line. But in reality, they were not journalists. In reality, the call to become a reporter was more internal. Mm. It, they needed to go and witness themselves, their conflict. And once they got there, they got addicted. So it was almost, you know, a call of blood to a certain extent. And then everything became uh, normal for them to be in the front line, to be close to that on a daily basis, to the extent that when they went back, life, the life they had before, was unreal and they couldn't stand it so they had to keep going back 
different places. So I would say that this is almost going back to our origins. We still have the same brain. Right? Absolutely. And also, if you look at it in historical time, I think it's only within the last 40 years or so that we have been so peaceful that we didn't want to, to go somewhere and experience war and, and mayhem. I mean, we have the long, line, or long history of creating venues where you can actually go and witness these things. Like the, the Romans, you could go to Colosseum. It was only built for the sole purpose of actually witnessing people getting killed in the most horrific ways. Or if you look at people being guillotined yeah. in France, people would bring their children and their picnic baskets, and they would actually go there and have a family picnic while they were looking at heads rolling. So I think it's, it's a new thing that we look at it as a morally uh, wrong thing to do this. It used to be quite different. But Loretta was speaking about this normalization mm. of war. Is it normal? Would you argue that it's normal for the human being to witness war, to, to wanting to witness war? I think what's normal to the human being is actually to be engaged in conflict. It's sort of a social program we have, like other species have other kind of programs to deal with a normal life. And hum as humans, we are highly concerned with territoriality, we are highly concerned with our own position in the, the ranks, much more so than a lot of other animals. We, look, we are a lot like chimpanzees in this way, actually. Chimpanzees would gladly watch all seasons of Game of Thrones. They would love the whole yeah. thing that was going on, the struggle, all these conflicts, and I think humans are certainly built that way. That is not to say that we love um, watching people in pain, But I think in pieces of time, we have this strong, deep-seated need yeah. to deal with these kind of things and prepare for this like you would with having a computer game for social conflict. Loretta? Well, I agree. I mean, I am convinced that, okay, so how do you define peace? Peace is the opposite of war. I mean, then all of a sudden, we don't have war anymore. So it's very difficult to define peace. It's very difficult to define our own existence. Now, w what we are seeing in the last uh, 70 years of peace is increase in suicide, increase in depression, increase in all of these sicknesses, uh, which are antisocial sicknesses, really. Almost because we need something that is the opposite of peace in order to define uh, our own peace. So to a certain extent, I'm afraid to say that, but we do need war. We, we do need war, wars, and we, we I, I guess yeah. get wars is actually, wars are dependent on peace in a certain way. In order to say today, thank God that there is peace, we have to know what war is. But if we don't know, then what is this? And nothing really great has ever come out of people having too much leisure time. They yeah. have actually, we're not created for laying by the river, enjoying eating grapes. We only like to do this on vacation. We don't like to do it all the time. Yeah. I've been doing research on gorillas, for instance, and gorillas are highly peaceful. They really want to just sit there eating leaves. Scratching their stomachs. Scratching their stomachs, get fatter and fatter, rolling around with their children. They yeah. really enjoy that. But I don't think humans are that kind of species. Right, right. Uh, and speaking of humankind as a species, um, of course, war tourism, or at least the lust for bloodshed, is nothing new, you said. Uh, in fact, it's been going on for centuries. 
Uh, we've had public executions in Denmark until the, be the beginning of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing new here. And you actually brought a clip that we, I would like us to see. Um, perhaps you can explain a little bit about it afterwards, but it's from the Danish motion picture called A Royal Affair. Um, let's have a look. It's clip seven. Sorry about the uh, not warning you before. For those of you who hadn't seen the movie, now you won't have to. Um, I mean, I guess the interesting thing about this clip is actually not the protagonist, the Danish actor Mads Mikkelsen. It might be the audience. Mm. I still don't quite get what does the audience get out of watching such a horrible event. Well. <clears throat> Actually, the film is, uh, I would suggest you watch the film, it's an amazingly great film. Um, the audience is watching uh, the killing because he is perceived as the enemy. So, you know, this bloodthirsty desire of justice, uh, this is why they're watching it. And this is why during the French Revolution, <laughs> people would have a picnic watching people, you know, heads being cut off. And the same thing happens in the Islamic State. Let's not forget. We were all shocked about the fact that there were public executions. Uh, by the way, in Saudi Arabia, it's on a daily basis that people get their head chopped in front of everybody else. So why are people watching it? Because they think that this is the justice, the justice of the state, the justice of themselves, of the society. In reality, in this film, the guy who is killed is actually the guy who is on the side of the people. And this yeah, is why... They should actually have been happy about yeah, this, exactly, guys. exactly. And this is why there is a moment in which he looks at, the, at all the people and, he's, and he thinks, oh my gosh, these are the ones I wanted to free and these are the ones who are killing me. And I think this is another element of there is no good and evil, ever. No, even in the past. It's evil versus it's evil. It's always evil because we are good and evil and we get out the good and the evil. I think, and I think it's really difficult for people to, to accept the fact that we are yeah. so strongly both of these things. Um, I know in terms of comparative psychology, there used to be these debates, especially in the 70s, about uh, so what is really a human being? Mm. Are we like, are we the evil kind of species? Or are we the really good kind of species? And uh, first we, we used to look at chimpanzees and we were like, wow, they are our closest uh, animal relative, and they are very fearful. They are really temperamental. They are going to war. They are eating infant chimpanzees from other groups. They're actually not the sweet little Hollywood chimp you usually look at. They're quite ferocious. Um, and, we, and a lot of researchers would say, look, this is your human. This is the way we are if we don't bring some kind of discipline into it. Um, then we discovered that we have a relative that is as closely related to us, the bonobo. Mm. And they, instead of going to war, they actually have sex all the time. So whenever they get into situations where you can, would get all excited, instead of beating up on each other, they will actually start to have all kinds of intercourses in very creative ways. There are whole movies made about this. And, uh, and, and there would be this very strange thing about like, oh, this is what the world would look like if we had female dominance. The world would be a peaceful, great place because humans are really nice. 
And I think none of it is really true. No. We are certainly. I, I look at my wife, and I definitely no, think this no, is not true. No, no, female dominance would be a catastrophe. <laughs> that would be even worse. So anyway, I think yeah. we are we are both capable of these amazing acts of love, where we have the greatest form for empathy for other creatures than probably any other species would have. But we are also capable of this kind of sadistic, um, warmongering. But let me stop you right there. The sadistic uh, behavior, you say, is nothing new. But as much as it, it is nothing new, wouldn't it be fair to say that the commercialization of this absurdity, of this sadistic uh, behavior, is, Loretta? Well, I think uh, there is a reason why we like uh, violent films. I mean, yeah, Rambo, for example. Um, it's one of the most popular films ever. And if you think about, you know, Rambo is, you know, pure violence. Uh, is uh, uh, one man against everybody else. Uh, is rebellion against a system that was be believed, you know, to be his protective system. And it is really going back to the animal that is inside us. So. I would say that uh, we do have it inside ourselves. Our brain is the same, our DNA is the same. Uh, of course, we are civilized people, but so were the Romans. You know, I mean, yeah, the Romans <laughs> was a very... They're not the first civilized people in history Exactly. And yet, you know, they went to the Colosseum and they really enjoy people being, you know, fighting each other, you know, killing each other, you know, uh, being eaten by animals. So I think... Uh, that to a certain extent we are denying uh, this aspect uh, because we think we have conquered everything, including evil. Don't you think, Loretta, when you look at this guy, the, the war tourist guy, uh, I mean, in, in, in my perspective, he's just sort of taken to extreme what you see at the highway if there's an accident. You know how in Danish we have this word which means that all the cars will go just a little bit slower because they all need to look Yes. in specific details on what's going on, Absolutely. and especially if there's blood, yeah. somebody died, that would be even greater. You actually really have to look at it. Yeah. Nowadays, people use their smartphones to take pictures at it. Yeah, yeah I agree, 100%. It's, it's, it's also voyeuristic, because none of these people actually gets engage in the fight. I mean, the, you know, the guy we saw before, he didn't say, oh, well, I went to Rwanda because, you know, I wanted to say with the Tutsi or the Wutsi. I mean, no, I just went there to watch. And you know, this is the same thing when you watch a violent film. You sit there and you watch and you absorb all this violence. And now, you know, why? Mm. Because we like it. Mm. We like the voyeuristic. And this is where the addiction, I think, comes from. And this is also where the misunderstanding of the risk because that's another element, you know, this, these guys, you know, go to war zone, they get kidnapped, uh, then, you know, we pay the ransom, uh, so, you know, our taxes end up, you know, rescuing these people, which in terms, of course, is funding terrorist organizations. So they are putting uh, this society in danger, our society, but also the society where they're going, right? But these people do not understand this. Right. Let, let, let me stop you right there. We'll, we'll get more into uh, talking about the, the Syrian civil war and what it's implying in terms of, of war terrorism. But uh, let's just for, for a brief second go back to the talk about the apes. You, men, you mentioned before the bonobo apes. 
but uh, during our talk earlier, you also mentioned the chimpanzees, and uh, you brought along a clip, uh, a cannibalistic clip, I'd say, about the chimpanzees. Um, I think it would be fair to attach the clip with a few words before we see it. Actually, I don't know what's on the clip because some of them are taken out, so I don't really know what's going to happen. Okay, it's 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 a it's a clip uh, where we I think it's implying the cannibalistic uh, sort of behavior uh, among the chimpanzees. Perhaps we should just see it and talk about it yeah. afterwards. The attack is on. <laughs> to intimidate their opponents, the aggressors scream and drum on buttress roots. <laughs> Several males corner an enemy female. It's a ferocious attack, and she's lucky to escape with her life. Jill, what do you make out of this? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, this is, of course, not nice to watch. I, went, I have been doing trips, field trips to Uganda, to the rainforest, and uh, you have this going on a lot, because chimpanzees, as much as I, I love them, they are totally ferocious. They get into fights all the time. It's very rare that you have peaceful quiet seances with chimpanzees. Um, but I think, actually, I think to chimpanzees, this is not as violent sometimes as it looks to humans, because like humans, they're actually made for this kind of ferociousness. Mm. And I think we tend to forget that humans, we are actually made for the Stone Age, pretty much. We are, we are lagging behind genetically. So usually for an evolutionary psychologist, I look at humans as being prepared for a world that is certainly not like you know what it used to be and what, what we were we were actually having these instincts to deal with situations that never arise in in modern western world at least so all the programs that we we are born with to deal with our situations they are trying to deal with situations that are not so anymore and i think this is more the kind of situation that we are prepared for we are prepared for these kind of to the limit, violent, uh, we have to defend our territory. Um, Game of Thrones, again, look at the Middle Ages. I mean, that, that was the kind of life people had. Yeah. They were all the time in situations where you could lose your head or somebody would try to rape you or steal something from you or kill you. Right, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, I've, I've, been, um, I've been to Syria a couple of times during the war as a journalist and I met a lot of guys who pretty much behaved as, as chimpanzees uh, down there. Not professionals, but uh, warriors, foreign fighters who went there uh, without any knowledge of how to fight. But they were, it seemed as they were seeking this adventure, as they were seeking um, this sadistic behavior. Is, is it fair to make a, a, a comparison between the chimpanzees and, and modern-day war tourists? Um, I, don't know about, I don't know much about war tourism as such, but I think it's certainly fair to say that we are much more chimpanzees inside. If, if, uh, what do you mean if by the that? Right, if the right things are triggered for that. I mean, I, I think we are capable of living a very, um, a very civilized kind of life, but it doesn't take very much to bring out much more primal things in us. Um, and I think if you look at the way people used to join armies, it was not so professionalized as it is nowadays. It yeah. used to be just anybody, every man older than 
I don't know, 13 or 14 or whatever, would grab whatever kind of weapon they had at hand and they would all go out to war when they need to, needed to do that, mm -hmm. like chimpanzees actually right. do. Um, so in that respect, I, I, don't think it's, um, I don't think it's an unfair comparison from your side. Um, it's certainly something primitive that is easily evoked if it needs to be. But Loretta, given the fact that the world, at least the Western countries, the comfortable, safe Western countries, uh, add as a value to the citizens a certain amount of, 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 comfortable, uh, of comfortable living, um, would it be fair to say that the more comfortable you are in a Western society, the more lust would you have, the more desire would you have to seek conflict abroad? Well, I, I don't agree with the fact that we are comfortable. I think there is a, a, another form of violence. We are extremely violent, even in our everyday life. Um, you can see it at work, you can see it in social relationship. So we actually channel this part of ourselves through a different kind of violence. If you end up without any money, I can guarantee you that no institution or bank will come and help you. We are perfectly happy to have people living in the street, uh, you know, passing by them without even thinking about, you know, maybe this human being needs some help. So I don't think that there is no violence. But there is not that um, um, original kind of violence, that blood element uh, that we've seen uh, in, in the past that we've seen in the Middle Ages. So I would say that something like the Islamic State, the reintroduction of the Sharia as the Sharia was conceived at that time um, has appealed to lots of people. Um, I'm thinking about, for example, the women, especially the British women, uh, that went to the Islamic State in order to marry the future martyrs, uh, I mean, knowing exactly that they were going to step into a Game of Thrones kind of environment. Uh, these were well-educated, uh, you know, brought up in the West, uh, and then all of a sudden they decided that they wanted to be the founding mother of this new state, uh, which was built upon, uh, really, you know, blood principles. Mm. So uh, that, in that case, I would say, yes, uh, perhaps the comfort uh, of life that they had in the West, uh, all of a sudden it became a vacuum. I don't want it anymore. I really want to go back. And to maybe sometimes we really need to see ourselves existentially. I think humans have a need to sort of look at themselves from the outside. How, what am I like in this kind of situation? Yeah. And I think if we have too much peace and comfort or whatever we want to call it, I think we certainly want to push ourselves to places where maybe like the journalist you talked about that go to war zones yeah. and they will become so addicted to that because they will look at themselves and they will be like, wow, am I this kind of person? How when I react in these kind of situations? Mm. And we don't often get that. Of course, in a place like Denmark, we never get the chance to, to do anything like that. Um, there are certainly a lot of other countries where you don't need to. So, so, so as much as wars might be a divider, wars would also be an attraction? Yeah. I mean, wars is something that makes us human. I mean, I think this is something extremely uncomfortable to accept. But, but, but if but you look at the history, you know, we always had war. 
But then again, you, you, there's, a, there's a difference between watching a television show, watching the news. I guess we're all watching the news, all the terrible things that are happening in Iraq, for instance, or Somalia or Syria. But there's a, there's a difference there in watching the news and then actually engaging yourself, packing your stuff, traveling to Turkey, cross into the border into Syria, for instance. Uh, and I, right now, as far as I'm concerned, there are, there are an increasing amount of tourists, uh, for instance, from Russia, who are actually mm. going to Syria to, to watch the, the conflict from, from first row. I mean, there's, there's a difference there between the audience who might watch the huh. television news and the ones that are actually going. But I guarantee you, if it wasn't so difficult to get to these places, if this was actually happening out on, uh, I don't know, in Finland or Kongshav or something in Copenhagen or somewhere where you could publicly go to, mm. I'm sure that people would actually go there. It's just, of course, it takes a lot of effort to get to Syria. You really? But, uh, but look at the Finland. I think he's out on Finland on Amar, right, uh, where Strunze loses his head. Yeah. Um, people would go there all the time. I'm sure people would do that in Denmark. Would travel would. in order to see. Sure. But there is another element which I think here we should reflect upon. So, are we the center or are we the periphery of the new world? Because that's the issue. So, the Pope said, um, I think two years ago, he said, World War III has already started. And do you know what? He's right. Because if you look at the world, there are wars everywhere. If you compare the map of the world today and 20 years ago, we have many, many more wars. The only place that is relatively peaceful, where of course we have terrorism, is us. So, I mean, which is the, <laughs> the no, real world, right? If we are the periphery, then uh, you want to go to the center. That's the attraction, the, attra the, the feel of this is not real. We are on the edge of the new world. I want to go and see what there is. Our curiosity, right? The human curiosity. I want to go and see what there is at the center. And if you look at numbers, like you say, we are so few people that are actually living this peaceful life. Look yeah. at people all over the world. It's really, it's both historically, this is a very unusual time in history where there's been so much peace for so long, and also worldwide. I mean, yeah. it's maybe it's us that are living the, the strange yeah. life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I can't help to think of, um, of, a, of a childhood friend I had. His name is Amir. Amir is 29 years of age. I'm 29 years of age. His mother's from Denmark. My mother's from Denmark as well. His father's from Pakistan, just like my father. Our fathers even came from the same city in Pakistan called Rawalpindi. Uh -huh. We were born in Denmark. We were raised at the same block, played football in the same football club. We, uh, we were you know, doing all the stuff that childhood friends did, because he was my childhood friend, and now I'm sitting here talking with you, and Amir is in Syria fighting with the Islamic State. And so what you're telling, telling me is also that one thing is sort of the outer circumstances, the, the arena, the periphery of, of what's happening, and another thing is what's happening inside the individual human being. And that makes me think, how much do we actually know about the inside? We're talking about you know, seizing power like the apes and, and you, know, you know, fighting with each other. But do we know something from, from the primates that would actually sort of explain why uh, people are, you know, risking their lives? You, were touched, you touched a bit upon it before, but 
could you sort of elaborate on that? I think this is actually where one of the places, if, if you look at why do some people go to Syria and fight and you stay here or whatever, I think that's one of the places where I would look at humans as being a very extraordinary species because I think this is where the, the existential element sort of kicks in because I think uh, people, they have, if you have the time to think about your life, um, like in Denmark where you have a lot of leisure time, if you have the time to think about your life, it is different routes we need to take in order to get this, um, this feeling of getting to know ourselves. And I think this existential um, dimension certainly has a big part to play in whether you want to bring yourself at risk in a, in a war situation or whether you want to be here as a journalist. Or maybe um, it's about fame. Um, maybe it's about yeah. the, the, the social media, the, the, the 15 minutes of Instagram fame, the, the, the fact that you're actually there on the first row, uh, being able to tell your parents, your friends, your family about what's happening, uh, that to be some sort of a amateur researcher. I don't know, would it be a famous uh, thing? Well, I mean, there is an element of that uh, in uh, a lot of these um, uh, freelancers that go to Syria, they went to Syria, I mean, John Cantley, for example. Or the Danish uh, photographer or of the Danish uh, Daniel Rui. Yeah, I, I don't know if we've got yeah. a picture of Daniel Rui here, but yeah. we've got a... Uh, yeah. A story in Denmark yeah. that most might be familiar with, a Danish photographer called Daniel Rui, who, who got captured by the yeah. Islamic State. But, but, you know, if you think about it, Daniel Rui was already famous. He was a very well-known gymnast. So he made it to a certain extent in peacetime. <laughs> so it was not enough. Um, I mean, John Cantley was um, a motorcycle, uh, um, aficionados. And just he, to add, John Canley is uh, a British citizen who, who also got kidnapped by the Islamic yeah. State. So it, it was a sort of um, modern version of hippie to a certain extent. So um, why somebody like him all of a sudden decides to go to Libya? Because you know, most of these people went to Libya first. Uh, so it was the Arab Spring that started this new phenomenon. And the call of the Arab Spring was a revolutionary call. So I want to go there and witness the revolution. And yes, maybe you know, the element of becoming famous did play a role, but the, the real call was I want to be there in the middle, in the thick of the fight. I want to be present. And then, yes, you know, I will report it. And if you look at their stories, the story that these people wrote, they are all snapshots of the violence. So none of them actually wrote um, what was happening in a political context, in a geopolitical context. It was all down to the action, to the violent action, but, and that's about it. But, but then if I, if I was a... If I was an editor, or if I was a, if a publisher, I would argue that, you know, these guys are heroes. These are the ones that are traveling abroad to document the war uh, that is one big black hole seen from outside. We need people to document what's happening. No, I disagree, because they're not reporting the war for what it is. You cannot report about the rebels in Syria um, so that the rebels look the good guys. The rebels uh, were not the good guys. We know it now because they kidnapped <laughs> the people <laughs> that were saying the rebels are good guys. You cannot, I mean, y y you are 
again presenting a narrative that is a fake narrative. There is no good and evil. Everybody is evil. Everybody was involved and still is in that war for personal interests. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Turkey, you name it. So they told us a lie. This is fake news. But it's interesting, Loretta, I would never imagine that fame, I mean, of course, people have all kinds of motivations, but I would never imagine that fame would be a big thing in war tourism. I, was, I would rather think that, like, the women that wanted to yeah. marry Syrian warriors uh, and having their children, I would much rather think that it was because they wanted a more simple life. They wanted a strong man that could take care of them and they could have children in a simple kind of regime where things are not so complicated, where you have more a, a linear, simple structure in the way things are. I think a lot of people are really confused about this postmodern way to live. I think it, it's nice for us sometimes to actually remove the thin line between being humans and other animals and just let go of the, the social programs you actually created for. I think that's a big relief to a lot of people. We've been talking about war and we've been talking about blood as motivations of war tourism of, mm. of some sort. But what about death? I mean, I can't help thinking about the way we are treating death in a, in a Danish context, for instance. I mean, it's like death is something we're ashamed of. Mm. Uh, in other countries, you've got uh, death, uh, you know, dead people being, uh, being brought along the roads. Uh, you, the you, you are, you're, you're basically doing ceremonies, public open ceremonies, in order to sort of celebrate the dead people. In, in some of the Western countries that I'm familiar with, we are almost ashamed of death. Is it too far-fetched to say that, you know, death is also a driving factor here? That people are, are, are traveling in order to witness death? Oh, I, I think we're certainly fascinated by death. But yeah. I, don't think, I don't think it would be um, the right causality to say that yeah. because we see so little death, then we need to see death. Because in the times of Strunze, and Caroline Mathilde, you would actually see death all the time. So I don't think that in itself is enough to explain this. But I think certainly we are very fascinated by death and we need to sort of learn to cope with it. Yeah. So we want to witness it. Reda. Well, I think there is also the element of challenging that. So now we're talking about the most narcissistic generation we ever had, okay? Because, you know, this super ego <laughs> is ruling all of us. So uh, we in the West have conquered everything, aging, uh, you know, sicknesses, uh, and the only thing that we're still missing is that then it will be God, right? So I go there, I challenge death because I'll come back and I'll survive. I, I think that is something. And I think that gives you a huge adrenaline kick yes. to actually that's the, yourself that's so the maximum. I think that's the maximum you're going to get. And I, I think, I don't know if you agree, that this is something related to civilization. Mm. No, I agree. I certainly think so. I think, like I said earlier, that I think that some of our social programs are actually, we're born with them so we can deal with situations that will happen a lot in our life. And, and death is incomprehensible to people, yeah. and it has always been incomprehensible. So we need to sort of like train ourselves sort of to prepare what is it like that I'm actually one day not going to be here anymore. 
and then you survive sometimes from the Syria, you go to Syria, you fight, you come back, you're like, wow. Yeah. Right. I, I just, I want to do an experiment here, because um, there might be a difference in actually being fascinated by war and wanting to go to war yourself. How many, how many in here, hands up, how many want to go to a war zone? Almost none. How many here are fascinated by war? Quite a few. So what that, what that tells me is that we are, we are fascinated by the war, at least from a distance, and that is, this is also changing. Um, I, went to, I had dinner with uh, Loretta last night, and when I came home, we, uh, I went to TripAdvisor just to see if I could find tourist attractions that were basically war zones. And I stumbled upon Udoya, the island in Norway. Um, I actually printed out something here, because war tourists are not just like Andrew Drury. It's also families and, and young couples, uh, young lovebirds traveling on their uh, honeymoon. And there's a guy from Budapest who wanted to go with his girlfriend to Udoya. And he says, is it possible to visit the island of Udoya? I just couldn't believe what I saw about the tragedy in the news. But we'll, we'll be in Norway in February, and I guess the lake will be frozen, so perhaps we can walk out there. Any idea? Thanks in advance. And what was interesting here was that people responded with sickness. People actually said and wrote him, you know, answered yeah. him back that, and said that he was, he was crazy. That one, one wrote, I actually felt sick when I saw your question. So perhaps it's changing also. I mean, it's not only crazy guys like Andrew Drury, but also young couples, uh, people like us who might not be interested in going to war zones, but are still fascinated, in, fascinated by wars, uh, would go to places such as Ground Zero, where they built a museum uh, recently, uh, in order to sort of experience kind of, you know, the tragedy. Well, if you look at Utøya, I mean, I read the newspapers the days after Utøya, and yeah. there was some very graphic looking pictures where you could actually almost tell who the people were in the pictures that were laying that dead. So um, it may be that you don't want to actively go to Utøya, but they sell a lot of newspapers bringing these pictures. So there must certainly be an and, audience. And we are buying for, the newspapers as soon as we yeah, see the pictures. Yeah, and they did it for many, many days. And I'm sure that they have a good commercial sense, the newspapers, so they wouldn't bring these photos if nobody wanted to see them. And I think there's a big fascination of this. So I think the, the, the change, the postmodern change, is not so much that you want to go to Utøya. It's that you don't bring your family to Utøya and your children to look at it. I mean, that's what you would have done in Strunz's time or in the old Rome. You would actually not have been ashamed about it. Nobody would have said you were sick in the head. Right. Loretta? Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's also, these are exceptional events, and you want to witness. If you can't witness in the moment, you can always you know, go there, take a selfie, and say, oh, you know, 15 kids were killed on this beach. I mean... It happens. It actually happens. And we still go and see the Colosseum. Uh, and you, know, you go to do a tour of the Colosseum, and people are fascinated by the stories uh, that the tour guide tells you about you know, the bloodshed that took place inside the Colosseum. Uh, so history is all the same. It doesn't matter if it happened uh, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or if it happened... Uh, uh, several centuries ago, history is a long strain of blood. Just, just on a final note here, because we're running out of time, do you think the war tourism will increase? Do you think that the human interest 
of participating somehow in wars or at least witnessing wars will increase in the future? I don't know enough about war tourism to say whether that will increase, but I certainly think what will increase is that people instead of um, when they witness accidents and when they are in these kind of situations, instead of just standing there thinking about it, whatever you did not that many years ago, you will be more and more public about it. So you will broadcast the things on YouTube or you will put it to your Facebook page or whatever. So it becomes more like this uh, interactive way to deal with these things again, like it used to be. I don't know about the particulars in going to, this, to the war zones like this guy. Yeah, well, I think it very much depends on, on what ha will happen between the periphery and the center. Um, there is not going to be a decrease in number of conflicts uh, because you know, the, there is not a solution really. Um, so I would predict uh, that there will be more and more conflict in the periphery, meaning can be this um, jihadist terrorism. You saw what's happened in, in the UK. We now have an attack every 10 days. Before we had France. So, and also we're getting used to, this is the other thing, uh, because you are talking about the pictures uh, on, on the front page of the newspapers. If you see the reaction uh, of the media and of the people to this attack, and you compare it uh, to the reaction to the Atosha attack in 2004 of the London first bombing 2005, you can see that um, the, the reaction today is minimal mm. in comparison. So we're getting used to it. Um, so perhaps if there is more of this kind of violence uh, around the corner, we will go and witness that violence instead of you know, going to witness uh, so war um, tourism may actually flourish within our own countries. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big round of applause to Jill Bionit and Loretta Napoleoni. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.